Uh, I get the privilege to introduce Rachel Gilson. Uh, she has a bio that you can read. I'm not going to read it to you. Um, here's, uh, I had the privilege uh, of being in New Haven when, Ka- when Rachel came to Christ and from there uh, developing a, a friendship in, uh, with her, my wife and, uh, and I and, and, and her. Uh, had the privilege to, um, I, I can remember when, uh, when Rachel uh, came back from summer mission and said that she had this uh, boyfriend. And, uh, and I was like, well, I'd like to meet that young man. And, and I got a chance to, the privilege to meet him and know him. And then I actually had the privilege to, uh, to, to perform their marriage ceremony together. And uh, the Gilsons are, are really good friends of ours. And so so the way I want to introduce Rachel to you is this way, is to tell you that because of that relationship, I get to tell you that uh, Rachel is real and authentic. She's a Christ follower. Um, she's loved by Jesus, and she knows that, and she loves Jesus. And, um, and life isn't always easy uh, for the Gilsons, and life isn't always uh, peachy king, and being a speaker person isn't always the, 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 fun, the funnest thing to do all the time. Um, but what you're about to hear from her is, is real and authentic. Um, because she's been transformed by Christ. And so I just want to encourage you and challenge you to, to and I know you've, I know sitting and listening is, is also work. Uh, so turn your minds on. Uh, let, me, let me just say a quick word of prayer and get us ready, and then she'll come in and tell us, all right? Lord Jesus, um, we want to hear from you uh, through your word and through Rachel. So keep us attentive to your Holy Spirit this morning through the truth uh, that you're about to give to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Rachel. I don't have a PowerPoint, so I was originally hoping I could just have the picture of Christopher's marriage photo up, just because that was really cute and nice, but it doesn't, you know, totally relate, so I thought maybe maybe we won't do that. I have had the opportunity, so I'm a campus minister, so I talk to 18 to 22-year-olds a lot about what God says about a variety of things, what God says about this topic, and always when I talk about it, I start with my story, but tonight, uh, like this morning, I don't start with my story, so I feel a little like I'm coming into a movie halfway through, so if I look disoriented at first, that's why. It's just different, a different pattern than normal. I will get to share with you my story tonight of how I came to Christ at Yale from a background of atheism, from a background of homosexuality, um, but we won't go into all that right now, but part of what's important <laughs> right now... <laughs> Aren't they adorable? They're so great. What's important is, in terms of how I'm coming to this issue is that it wasn't a hobby for me. It was, it was theology that I had to do immediately and under duress. It was, it was something that was vitally important uh, when I came to Christ because I, I came into a relationship with God and my attractions to women didn't go away. And so I had to, I had to process that. And so in my first, in, at the beginning of my Christian life, I had to understand, okay, well, I, I see in the scriptures clearly that God does not affirm same-sex sexual relationships. We just saw a great lecture, right, <laughs> walking through the text. But what I didn't understand was why. I had, I had nothing to, to explain to me uh, what God was doing there. And I really, I really wanted to understand the why. And I, I think a lot of us, this is our natural disposition when we think about whether or not we're going to obey. And, not, and that, it's not all from a bad place. It's good, to, it's good to have understanding. But there is a way that we can wield our desire to understand as if it is a right to understand. There's a way that we can position ourselves as God 
and say, I will only obey if I understand. I want to see what you're saying, fully understand, and then decide whether or not I agree with that. So if I agree, then I'll obey. But if I don't agree, then then maybe I won't. There's this... um, an attitude of holding to ourselves a type of authority when we come to a text. And that was a, that was a, a place that could be natural in my heart. I, it seems to me to go all the way back to what we see in the garden. You know, when you think about the beautiful place that God put Adam and Eve, and uh, he, only, he gave them one rule. Don't eat of this specific, don't eat the fruit of this specific tree. And I'm on college campuses a lot, and I hear people make fun of this, like, oh, what's so bad about eating a fruit, right? Like, even vegans eat fruit. You know, the the rule on the face of it can can look silly. We might have understood if God had said, here's your one rule, don't kill your only friend. You know, there's only two people here. Like, we, maybe we would understand that, right? Like, oh, killing does seem wrong, it's gory, you know, then I'd be lonely, right? So we could say, oh, I agree with that, so that... That makes sense. But part of how the serpent tempted Eve was causing her to look at it and say, maybe that doesn't make sense. She looked at the fruit. She saw that it was good to eat. She que- he caused her to question God. She said, yeah, I'm going to take, take that and eat it. Maybe I don't agree. And Adam ate it too. And then we have all these problems, right? <laughs> There's... There's something ingenious about God um, putting that first rule in something that that looked nonsensical because it forces the issue to not be about the rule itself. It forces the issue to be about, can you trust him? Is the one who's asking you trustworthy? I've experienced this on a new level as a parent of a four-year-old when I understand that what I'm asking my daughter to do is fully reasonable and she thinks this is insane. But there's a question of can she, can she trust me? And so very early in my faith, I had to go back to that question a lot. Can I trust God? Because that's the issue. Because the only way I can obey before I understand is if I trust him. And a big part of the process for me was looking at the life and death and resurrection of Christ and seeing in that a final and forever proof of his trustworthiness. And it's not simply that he was willing to die for me. I mean, that's huge. It is huge. But I don't think I'm ever going to understand the comfort and the glory and the delight that he left in the Trinity in heaven to save people that didn't deserve it. I am certain that uh, if I had died in my sin, I would have stood in front of Christ and I wouldn't have been like, no, you've got this all wrong. I think I would have seen perfectly my sin, seen his holiness and said, you have to condemn me. Like he had no obligation to come and save me. He had no obligation at all to come and save us, but he did it because he loves us. He left something perfect. And then his whole life was, I mean, really hard. He was born poor into an occupied country. From all that we can tell, his earthly father died young, so he was probably responsible for the care of his brothers and sisters. And then when he's a grown man, he's homeless, itinerant, 
all of his friends are idiots. And the people who should worship him are literally plotting to kill him and ultimately succeed. Like that's, it's not just about the death. It's the, the difficulty even of the life that he took on for us. Anyone who would go through that is trustworthy. The, the person of Christ and who he is alive today, I mean, he still has the scars on his resurrected body. Roots for me that he is all goodness, that what he speaks to me is for me. And I think in any conversation we have about ethics, especially in a conversation about something where our culture does not line up with what God says, we have to put it back into who he is. This is not about a set of rules like the Apple terms and services that you just click accept to, but you don't really read. You know, this is, this is about a person who is drawn near and invites us to continually draw near. We have to understand him in it. And so I, I do think, I mean, it's so helpful to have those texts that Christopher just walked us through, right, that make it clear about what God says about same-sex sexual behavior. But I think there's also, and I know Christopher agrees with me, there's also so much that's laid out positively in the Bible that I think we would understand God's vision for sexuality even if those texts weren't there. We're glad to have them, but we see God's character and design throughout the whole book, throughout all 66. I'm a big believer in interpreting everything through all 66, so my heart was cheering with joy during the canonical context part of that talk. So what, how, do we, how do we understand God's intentions? Well, we, we certainly start in the garden. We see that creation of male and female as good. That's the only thing before sin that God says isn't good. It isn't good that Adam's alone. He created male and female are both a part of this picture. And then he looks and he says, this is very good. And so then we see in the garden, we see throughout the whole text that there are at least four goods to married sexuality. There's, there might even be more, but there's at least four. The first is that it images God. And Christopher just did a great job explaining to that, that to us from Genesis, that male and female together, especially in the marriage relationship, rooted in Genesis, we see it again in Matthew 19, we see it again in Ephesians 5, we even see it again in the new creation when Christ is, Christ is the husband, his people are the bride, that there is something powerfully um, illustrative of, the, of male and female marriage about God and his people. Another good of marriage is procreation. This, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, um, it is incredible that we can bring into the universe something that will never go away. I mean, humans are eternal. Right, children are forever. They are forever. And the fact that we have that power to do that, to create new life, is another way that we image God. God is the one who creates new life, and he, and he wires this into us, this, this capacity to reproduce. We also see the goodness of companionship, that there's a type of companionship in male-female marriage that is rich and beautiful and, and meaningful. Uh, and, of course, we also see the good of sexual pleasure. You might be familiar with um, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, the book of the Bible that 
hits majorly on the theme of sex. There is nothing about procreation in that book. There's just not. It, that, that is a book that focuses on the other goods, right? And so we, it's an interesting read. Um, so we see the whole image throughout, even post-fall, the whole image throughout is that God has created this thing to declare who he is, who we are, and for us to experience blessing. And that's really helpful because I think it orients us to knowing that his nose, the things that he prohibits, are never arbitrary. They're only nose because he has created certain yeses. It'd be a little like complaining that you can't run your car on dish soap. You're like, well, that's just, it's not how it's designed. No one at Ford or Honda was mean to you because you can't dump dish soap into it and make it run. It's just, it's designed to run on gasoline. That's what you have to do. Like marriage, gender, sexuality was designed in a certain way. And when it's not operated in that way, it's going to break down. Quickly or slowly, it will break down. And the thing is, because we live in the fallen world, because we have inherited both the guilt of Adam and the propensity to sin, we break everything we touch. That's a, it's, we, we are fallen and we experience the fall in so many ways. So even when we talk about the goodness of creation in male and female, the fall creates a sense of estrangement even from our own bodies. We experience estrangement from our work, estrangement from the task of reproduction, estrangement in that marriage relationship. And even today, we, we have brothers and sisters who feel like when they look in the mirror and they see their self as the sex that God caused them to be born as, they feel a complete disconnect from that. And that is, a, that is a, an incredible pain associated with the fallen world. But another, another way that the fall affects all of us is that all of us are broken in our sexuality. Every single one of us experiences brokenness in that area. Um, so we might be attracted to people who could never be our spouse or who aren't our spouse. We might be using sex abusively or in power plays, or we may have been the victims of sex used in that way. Um, or we might even be just trying to get the goods that God set in sex without God himself. Because the thing is, we, we're broken image bearers. There's still enough of God in us that we can kind of grasp at and get at the things that he's set up in the world and have them run for a time without him. I mean, I think, I mean, I certainly know, I'm sure you know, um, people who are married, who don't know the Lord, whose marriages are good and healthy, and there's a way that even they experience the goods the goods that God has set up, even though they don't have him. Now, it's just temporary. If they don't know him, those goods of marriage are not, they're not going to save that couple. They need Christ to make it complete. They need Christ to understand the fullness. But part of, part of what we try to do as fallen creatures is we try to get God's stuff without him. It's just a thing that we try to do. And because we're in a society that has decided that only two of the goods of marriage are real, there's more ways to try to get it 
without following, without following God's design. So we, we're in a, a Disney moment where marriage is only understood as this explosion of romantic and sexual love. That's not a realistic picture, and it's certainly not the biblical picture, but imaging God doesn't matter. Procreation certainly doesn't matter. Or it matters if you want to choose it in very specific situations. What really matters is the companionship piece and the sexual pleasure piece. And so if that is all marriage is, then it makes a lot of sense when two people of the same gender want to get married, right? Because they can have companionship and they can have physical pleasure. And so since we already start with a truncated view of marriage, we don't recognize that that setup doesn't fulfill the, the bigness of the imagery, the bigness of, the, of uh, the design of it, how it's meant to bless us. And so we, so what, what do we do now? I mean, we, we know God had original intentions. We know that we break everything we touch. So what now? Well, we, we have Christ who came to redeem us and not just save us for a future that's far away that we can barely see, that we see dimly, but he came that we could have life now, that we could be filled with the Spirit now, that we could experience restoration together now. And, that, um, and that's going to mean certain things because we're still... We're still in the fallen world, though we have the Spirit. So sometimes this is called the, the already, but the not yet. We are already saved, but we are not yet in the fullness of God's presence. I've also heard it described as the no longer, but still. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we still experience temptation. So part of what that means is once we're in Christ... Sometimes God will, if we're, even if we're talking about sexual brokenness, sometimes God will work in such a way that he will remove those sexual temptations that um, plagued you previously. That is some people's story. But as Christopher explained very powerfully last night, the call in the scripture is not to be straight. It's to be faithful. We're called to be faithful. And we, no matter whether we're attracted to men or women or both or potted plants or whatever, we, we all of us have two options. We can be faithfully married to someone of the opposite sex, or we can be faithfully unmarried, faithfully single. And both of these options show beautifully who God is and what he's doing in the world. They both relate to what we're, what our future is in the new heavens and the new earth, because uh, in, in that time, all of us are single and all of us are married. You know, Jesus affirms not, no one's married or given in marriage. At the same time, we are also all participate in the marriage of Christ and His church. So this is where I let you know, men, you're all part of the bride of Christ. But then again, I'm a son of God, so you know, it all it equals out eventually. <laughs> so. We have this powerful opportunity that through our right living out of both celibacy and sexuality, we can show God's goodness to the world. There's an exciting opportunity in it. So, um, so how does so 
we all need to rely on the Spirit first and foremost. We can't get this in the flesh. It's very human of us to see a problem and think, I can solve that by my own gifts or talent or intelligence or whatever. You think, I know Jesus and I can solve it in my flesh. And that's not really, we need the Spirit. We need the Spirit and God's people and the Word. Those are the things we need. But we have um, the opportunity to be faithful in our marriages. Like when in time has it ever been missional to just be a lady married to a man? Almost never, like, you know, 40 years ago would have been, wouldn't have been missional, but now in my neighborhood in Arlington, Massachusetts, it like, it's practically missional to be in a heterosexual marriage. <laughs> Especially if they get to know my story more uh, and understand that that, that was something uh, unique that I entered into. So there's great opportunity. We get to show who God is. And especially there's a wonderful opportunity as married people to create a culture of hospitality and inviting people in and and being the body, brothers and sisters um, with others. But I think especially faithful, the faithful unmarried state, faithful singleness um, has a powerful opportunity for witness. I'm not actually sure I love the word single because... We're invited into the body. We're invited to be family. I mean, it has to be family if you need to be born again to get in, right? We're brothers and sisters. Single doesn't quite seem to attract the idea because you shouldn't be alone, right? But that there's this, um, this way of saying to the surrounding culture, if you're single in Christ and if you're of a, a marriageable age, you can communicate the goodness of Christ in a really powerful way. Because let's say, for example, so we're in Lent, right? Yeah, we're in Lent. And uh, sometimes I give this illustration when we're not in Lent, so I had to think about it for a second. But it's a, you know, if you said, oh, what am I going to give up for Lent? I'm going to give up um, using the pogo stick for Lent. You know, it's like you never do that in your life. It's like, well, that's a, it's a small thing to give up. If it doesn't matter to you, you're like, well, okay, like how, how important could this tradition be? You're, you're not giving up anything anything of meaning. You're just giving up something silly. Um, you, you say like, oh, haha, that's, that's a funny thing to do. And there would be a way where you could communicate and say, well, I'm not having sex in this season because sex is no big deal. Like I don't think it's that, I don't think it's that meaningful. But when we see that the way God has designed sex, we would say, well, it's incredibly meaningful. So instead, if we talk about it such that I see in the scriptures that God has created sex to be powerful and good and meaningful, and I would love to be able to be able to participate in that. However, the only reason I would say no to something that good is because there is a greater yes to say yes to that as wonderful and as beautiful as marriage and married sexuality is, that Christ is even more beautiful. And we need to have an orientation in our hearts toward the beauty and worthiness of Christ if we're going to make it in the Christian life. Because the reason we choose our sin is not usually because we've just logicked our way into it. It's because we love it. We love our sin. And we need to experience a growing love of Christ if we're going to be able to walk in sanctification and to walk in, a, in obedience. A, a growing love, of course. We don't, we don't experience perfect love in these, in these bodies. But I think there's a way that, 
that singleness in Christ can communicate that bigness and that that glory of Jesus. So my best friend likes to make fun of me because she says, well, you've been married since you were 22, so what do you even know? So yeah, <laughs> what, what do I even know? But I think, I think it's real. And we also see, if you read your New Testament, that the unmarried state is the New Testament ideal. You know, Paul says it's not a sin to get married. You can get married. That's a good thing. But what power is there in a life unfettered, where you can run after God's mission. Um, you know, marriage is a wonderful place where you can create new human beings. But all of us has, have the call to usher, to be midwives of new life, new brothers and sisters that come into the kingdom. That's open to everyone. And you can, pull, you can pour your energy into it in a way that's unbounded by family obligations when, when you're free, when you're single. And that there's something really beautiful about that. That um, singleness is not a state, it can often be talked about just as a state of loneliness or a quietness. Or sometimes in the church, we, the entirety of what we have to say about the single life is don't have sex. It's hard to build like a full flourishing image of life on just, on just the sentence don't have sex. Well, aren't there a lot of positive things we are called to? Yes, we're called to being together as the body in real ways, intimate relationships, affectionate relationships, meaningful relationships in the church, out of the church, that there's a vibrancy that God has called everybody to. And sometimes we can also fall into the pitfall of thinking, well, marriage is the goal of the Christian life, and then once you're married, uh, you, you just stay married. But all of us are going to and have experienced singleness. I believe we were all single at the age of 10, for example. It's different then. But all of us will experience different periods of singleness in our life at some point, either when we're young or even again when we're old. If we, our spouses can die, we can end up widowed. I mean, there's situations. Singleness is not a monolithic thing. And so if we're able in our church to create healthy spaces to be unmarried, all of us are going to begin to flourish together because we're going to be able to function as the family um, that God designed us to be. That's what we see all throughout Scripture, is that God is constantly winning for himself a community. And so this is the Life on Mission conference, right? We're thinking as missionaries. We're thinking as people who want to reach out. And we know that we have friends and neighbors for who this issue is going to be a sticking point for a variety of reasons. I think is if we become more familiar with the positive image God has of a life he's calling us to. It is absolutely a life of self-denial, and it's absolutely a life of fulfillment. That there, It doesn't have to be the barrier that we think it is. We're going to have a whole talk on this, so I won't go too far in that. But that as we better verse ourselves in the, in the fullness of life that Christ came to give us even now, as we communicate the gospel, we're going to be able to communicate that goodness. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to pray, and we'll and we'll close and move on. Then, Father, we thank you that you sent your Son for us. You did not have to do that, but you loved us, and you still love us. And you call us to a life that is, that is full and bright, that is the aroma of life. 
in our communities, and, and of course, sometimes also the aroma of death, that we are, uh, we're not a neutral field. You've called us into great things, um, and we need your equipping, we need your vision, we need your help so much. And even as we think about um, the different ways that, our, that we experience brokenness and fallenness in our sexuality, um, we thank you so much for the forgiveness that is in Christ, We thank you so much for the power that is in your spirit to experience change, transformation, um, to have hope um, for better things. We love you. Uh, we, We ask that you just continue to be with us in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.